Uh, okay, the book that we are studying is called The Saving Truth Doctrine for Lay People. The paperback version, which is only $15 or $16, kind of looks like this. It's actually volume one. There's three volumes, um, but volume one is, is the one that we're studying. Volume two and three are different uh, types of writings. So the one specifically that's doctrine for lay people is this one right here. Um, if you don't want to order that through Amazon or through CPH, they should have copies back in stock up at the bookstore at uh, uh, the seminary in Fort Wayne if you're headed up that way or that direction, okay? Okay, let's see, there was something else before I kind of got into study I wanted to talk about. So today is Transfiguration Sunday. Um, I posted a little blurb on our Facebook page to explain a little bit of, of why, if you pay attention to the calendar, um, Every other Missouri Synod church that's on the three-year calendar won't celebrate Transfiguration for th uh, until three weeks. So why are we celebrating Transfiguration Sunday three weeks early? And the simple answer is, this is the historic uh, Sunday and observance of Transfiguration. So back in the late 50s, early 60s, um, there, there was something known as uh, the, the Second Vatican Council, and there at that council, as Roman Catholic uh, council, um, they made a lot of liturgical changes. And one of the things that was introduced at that time was a three-year lectionary, okay? Um, and this, uh, be, there's a couple of different names, revised common lectionary. There was an ecumenical attempt to join together all the different denominations by having the same lectionary. And there was some other history and stuff that went on that I'm not even gonna dive into right now. Because to be honest with you, I would just say this, as long as you're using, God's word is God's word, right? So, um, you know, Pastor Feeney uh, made, uh, developed his own lectionary here based on the lunar calendar that you're very familiar with and did great work on that uh, and is widely respected uh, for, for some of what he has offered to the larger church. So, you know, it's not really a matter of, of, of what lectionary is better than another because it's all God's word, right? So let's not get into that discussion. However, what you do need to know historically, and going back as well to uh, God's people, everything was done on a yearly basis. And you've kind of learned this if you spend any time with what Pastor Feeney has taught you with the lunar calendar. Everything is, is really based on a 12-month cycle, growing seasons and all these other things. And so God's people in the tabernacle and the temple, it was structured the same way. So doing a three-year cycle was a really big innovation when that came about, okay? I grew up with the one year. If, uh, you know, most of you here that are, that are probably uh, 40 or older, you would have grown up as well with the one year, okay? Uh, that's, that's really all that we used in the Missouri Synod. We were very united on that. So when the three year came out and then the blue hymnal Lutheran worship, which was at first a joint effort uh, between the ALC, the LCA, the Missouri Synod, I think Wisconsin might have originally been on board with part of that as well. And that kind of blew up in their face, uh, kind of in the early 80s because of some other issues. Um, and so then we ended up with Lutheran worship, the, the ELCA, which didn't form till 88, by the way, ended up with Lutheran book of worship. And, and some of that is kind of all in the past now because each of these denominations has now come up with their own independent hymnal. So our own independent hymnal is what we currently have, the Lutheran service book, right? And so we've got five different divine services in there. So, but back to the one-year calendar thing. So historically, the one-year calendar is the oldest. Um, and one of the questions that Pastor Grady and the elders that we had kind of studied was, 
what do we want to use here at Advent? And so uh, Pastor Grady first started using the three-year last fall, but then as he was teaching through the catechism, he was using some catechism materials that were really based on the one year. And he said, hey, I really want these kids to get connected to that. Uh, and so he and I talked and we looked at all that and we said, you know, we like the one-year calendar the best for a cycle. So that's what we're using right now, just so you know. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't go back to the three-year. So if you have preferences or opinions, talk to us. It's not a matter of law. It's a matter of freedom. But for us as pastors, we want something that is going to best teach you, um, you know, the, the basic truths and doctrine of Scripture. And all I'll say about the one-year, the one real reason that I like the one-year better than the three-year is that in the one year, say you've got a kid that's born, and then that you've got 18 years with them if you're lucky, right? And then they're off to college, and they're paying their own bills, hopefully by their 18. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to have to talk to my, uh, my financial planner if that's not the case. But anyway, so let's just say you've got 18 years to feed them God's Word in church every Sunday, right? So on the one-year calendar, they're hearing... The Old Testament, Epistle, and Gospel lessons, how many times over the course of 18 years? 18 times. On the three-year, how many times? Six. So repetition is the mother of all learning, right? Um, so, you know, I was a basketball player, and, you know, if I'm going to take 18 free throws, uh, and I'm going to practice, 18 versus six is going to be better than that, right? I mean, hopefully it's a lot more than that, but... You get the idea. It's just kind of repetition. So if the, the one year is new to you, just pay attention this next year, especially to how the Old Testament and the gospel connect and, and to uh, the cycle as we go through the year. Now, that being said, historically in the one year, there was a season called pre-Lent. And that was three Sundays that occur before the actual Lent Sundays. And historically, these are called the Gesima Sundays, which means absolutely nothing to you. So next Sunday, it'll be Septuagesima Sunday. Uh, sept, uh, root is seven. So Septuagesima basically means approximately 70 days before Easter. Can you guess what the next one is then? Sexagesima, which is approximately 60 days. Now, obviously, I always have to tell people approximate because people that are really particular about numbers are like, hey, there's only seven days in a week, not ten um, and this is just historically how the church kind of numbered and, and kept track of that. So we've retained a little bit of that. Um, and then you go to uh, uh, Quinqua Gesima. Anybody know what that is? Yeah, approximately 50 days before Easter. And then we'll start into, you know, the official uh, season of Lent after that. The pre-Lent seasons are, 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 uh, are preparatory um, and I really like the preparation. However, I still really like having a designated Lenten season as well. So just know that there are some churches you'll go to, um, uh, not just Orthodox, that will follow more of a one-year, but also Missouri Synod, who the pre-Lent season will look very much identical to Lent. And so one of the things that, that we'll do here is it'll, it'll still look like the Sundays before Lent. We'll still have green up on the altar instead of the violet, Okay. We are still going to sing Alleluia's during the pre-Lent season. Some churches will pack away or say farewell to Alleluia's ahead of time. We're going to wait till that Sunday before Ash Wednesday and go out with a bang. That's when, if you look up top and you see Phil playing the organ, the keys will be smoking on that last hymn. 
when he says farewell to Alleluia. So, um, so we'll still try and maintain a little bit of difference with that. But um, that, any other quick questions on that? So transfiguration celebrated today is actually the historic kind of time. To, it's been celebrated on this Sunday of the church year over the course of 1,500 years more often than it has otherwise. Okay, um, And so that's why. Okay, Nothing to throw? No questions? Good, good. Okay, uh, there's a neat little link on the Facebook page if you're not, uh, you know, check out our Facebook page if you want to. It's an article by uh, Paul McCain, uh, Reverend Paul McCain, who's with CPH, and a uh, re- really good explanation. So that's one that I've used over the years to explain it. Okay. Okay, any other questions before we begin today? Okay, we're going to see how well you can kind of see that um, up there. Can you, uh, is there a way to focus that just a little bit? Or maybe I just, oh yeah, oh, you almost had it. How's that in the back? Is that big enough? Okay. Okay, you ready to get started? That was a long introduction. The Lord be with you. O God, in the glorious transfiguration of your beloved Son, you confirm the mysteries of the faith by the testimony of Moses and Elijah. In the voice that came from the bright cloud, you wonderfully foreshowed our adoption by grace. Mercifully make us co-heirs with the King in His glory, and bring us to the fullness of our inheritance in heaven. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Today, we're going to take a little detour. Some of you are not going to like me for this, but um, they're developed here in the past couple of weeks uh, in issue here within our own Missouri Synod, regarding the sanctity of life. So on January 22nd, we had the Life March. Uh, We had one uh, downtown here in Indianapolis, had one in DC. Uh, And this kind of happens every time this year. However, a few days before that on January 18th, there was an article released um, by a rostered uh, teacher in our Missouri Senate. His name is Dr. Norman Metzler. Uh, He is now Emeritus Professor of Theology at Concordia University in Portland, Oregon. And if you followed any of just the political issues and news, some of you will know that Concordia Portland uh, has had a number of various issues over the years. I have some friends from seminary who graduated from there. There still are some good, faithful people up there, but it's a tough neck of the woods to be in. Um, And I'm glad that I've so far have spent my life and and career, if you will, in the Midwest. Um, But uh, these are things we need to be aware of and discuss because when something is is taught publicly, it reaches a number of people. And as pastors, we are the under-shepherds of Christ, and we're called to be concerned about what you hear. (laughs) We also, uh, as Dr. Marquard has taught us, want you to be equipped to discern error and to be able to think about things in a very scriptural way, right? So the one judge, soul, rule, and norm of all doctrine and teachings is what? What has Dr. Marquardt taught us so far? Scripture, right? So sola scriptura, scripture alone in that sense, one of the battle cries of the Reformation, okay? And we might use other things to help us understand, such as history and tradition, but, but those are not the sole norm, rule, source, or I would say judge, And you as a Christian have this available to you in Holy Scripture, okay? And by having Scripture, you now can discern error, (laughs) you can identify things, 
And it's really not you then who is judging doctrine, it's what that's judging doctrine? Scripture. It's God's Word. Now this is a point that's lost on some people. Matter of fact, I've had an email discussion with a brother from Nebraska who's been a little bit of a pain in my side. I love him to death. Um, But he teaches and preaches that sheep uh, cannot judge shepherds. That they cannot, sheep cannot uh, discern error nor have any business doing that. Um, and I strongly disagree with him, okay? And that's part of the reason I'm, I'm teaching you the book. Um, now, shepherds, uh, in, our, in our own confessions, do say that shepherds are the ones who are supposed to uh, judge doctrine and set the stage, but who is the priesthood of all believers? You and me, all Christians, right? And so we have authority. We don't ignore that. It's kind of like with the government, and I'll just stop here before I go any further, but... but you are called to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, correct? Jesus says that. But what happens when the government does something that is contrary to God's word? Whose authority then do you claim? The authority of Scripture, of God. You see how that works? It's the same thing in the church. So you should respect, you know, if you will, the three fathers or the three offices that God has given you. And Luther and our church fathers, Walther, talk about that. You have a father in the home. That's why the father is the head of the house. Okay? Uh, you have a father in civil affairs, which might be president, might be king. You might even say in terms of our democratic understanding, you know, Congress, or, or you could maybe say our three branches of government. There's a number of ways to explain that. Uh, and then you have a spiritual father, which would be your Pastor or pastors, right? And you are to obey all of them as long as what? They're not teaching something that's false or asking you to do something that's sinful, correct? So if I have a little kid that comes to me and, you know, and he, can, he tells me that his, his uh, dad or his mom is beating him or making him do things that are sinful or wrong, how do you think I'm going to handle that? Am I just say, yeah, whatever they tell you to do, just go ahead and do it? Absolutely not. And I'm probably going to call other authorities in to do that. And I'm going to tell him that he is not incorrect, he or she is not incorrect or sinning in any way to, uh, you know, to, to go against mom or dad. Okay. So, here we go. This article uh, was published uh, by Dr. Metzler, and we're going to read through it. Point your hand up if you have questions. Okay. Um, some of you are not going to like that I had you read this because you're going to be, I cannot believe that... This is written the way it is by a Missouri Synod Lutheran, but you need to be aware of that, okay? The abortion issue has become central to much of what is happening in our nation, politically, morally, and spiritually. Many would contend that it is one of the top issues, if not the single most influential issue, behind our presidential uh, election, the selection of Supreme Court justices, and coalescing otherwise rather diverse factions in our country in support of various candidates. Fair statement? I think so. I think that's a fair statement. Because it has become such a central and contentious issue, it is disheartening that this issue is framed so simplistically in the public discourse. You might want to underline that. Here he's going to get into a little bit of his theme of what he's going to talk to you about. So he feels that the issue is being simplified a little too much. For example, a Missouri Synod pastor in a recent issue of Lutheran Forum letter stated the matter thus, If human life begins at conception, legal abortion becomes untenable. If human life begins at birth then restrictions on abortion become untenable. Agree with that? Disagree? Yeah, I do. I agree. I think that's fair. Anybody want to argue otherwise? It's okay. 
No? Okay. Um, while I certainly affirm the sanctity of human life, along with those in the pro-life camp, and, and I'm not, I'm just, I'm not sure that he really does, but let's just hold on. I, I'm giving it away, aren't I? I believe such simplistic ways of framing the issue is misleading and does a significant disservice to those seeking earnestly to understand this complex problem in our world today in relation to their Christian faith and values. The other reason I wanted to present this to you is some of you have asked that as we go along teaching that I, that I help equip you to talk to those that may not know or may disagree with you, right? So to have a little bit of a Christian apologetic, how do we address that? And the abortion issue, it's kind of one of those things in the workplace, you just kind of don't talk about it, right? Or it might be. Uh, might be something that, that is talked about, but either way, you end up with, with strong feelings, you know, kind of on either side of the issue. The tragedy of problem pregnancies. And I, first of all, I just, I don't like how that, anyway, let's move on. It must be stated very clearly at the outset that the issue of abortion only arises in the context of a problem pregnancy. Part of the complexity is that there are widely varying definitions of when a pregnancy is a, quote, problem from when it threatens the life of the pregnant woman to when it is simply, quote, inconvenient. In any case, it is safe to say that no woman gets pregnant so that she can choose an abortion. And I think that's a fairly, fairly, uh, you know, uh, fair statement. Good? So we are talking about problem pregnancies, which by definition are tragic. One would wish that all pregnancies were both wanted pregnancies and healthy, viable pregnancies. In our broken world, sadly, this is not the case, and we Christians... Uh, must deal with this tragic and complex reality. I totally agree with them here. This is something we have to deal with, we need to talk about, uh, we need to be loving, we need to be concerned uh, for those women who have had abortions that are still struggling the effects from it uh, and may not even realize that, uh, to teaching, to preventing, um, and, and let's see where he goes from there. If there are situations where terminating a problem pregnancy is considered the best of tragic alternatives, then in such situations, it seems reasonable to hold that the abortion procedure should be legal and safe. The sordid history of illegal abortions and our recent natural history prior to Roe v. Wade alone should be sufficient grounds for keeping abortions legal and therefore medically safe and responsible. Now I'm going to stop there because he is incorrect. And on the very last page of the sheet, um, our current director of Lutherans for Life, Reverend Michael Salamink, uh, has written a very long response. It was too long to print off to you. If you want to start talking statistics about illegal abortions and that that's one of the, the main reasons that abortion should still be legalized, he provides all the facts and stacks for that. And it's woo, really eye-opening. It's really well done. And the link for that is on the bottom of the back page. Okay? So you can go check that out on your own, on your own time with your smartphone or device. Okay, page two. The typical oversimplification of the abortion issue by the anti-abortion forces fails to acknowledge the actual complexities associated with human reproduction. So, so basically, um, he is saying that I fail to acknowledge the actual complexities with human reproduction. Maybe I need to have my wife explain things to me a little bit better on that one. One cannot fairly discuss the issue of human reproduction and pregnancy without taking into account the larger fundamental reality of fecundity in God's creation, uh, such that not every acorn becomes an oak tree. And I'm going to pause right here. Fecundity is a big word, and if you don't get Reader's Digest that has all the little word for the day, or you've got the little flip calendar next to the far side that you tear off, fecundity simply means the ability to reproduce um, or new growth. 
okay? Uh, or simply a synonym might even be fertility in that sense, okay? So he's talking about the larger fundamental reality of God's creation in terms of the ability now uh, to reproduce, but every acorn becomes an oak tree. Are human beings oak acorns? Are we oak trees? I mean, human beings are, are quite different from the rest of creation. And this is where we would follow Dr. Marquardt's teaching and go back and look at Scripture. What separates when God creates uh, Adam, how is that different from let there be light or let there be an oak tree or let there be a hippopotamus? What does God do differently with humans? Two things. He breathes life into them, okay? Or we would simply say um, he gives them a soul, right? A spirit, okay? And the other way that's different is? Okay, oh, three ways. Thank you. I forgot about that one. No, that's a good one. I kind of did this one off the top of my head, so that's very good. Created in God's image, yeah. So there, there is, there is an, an image, and this is a angels dancing on the head of the pin moment because there's a lot of ink that's been spread talking about the image of God. Um, so we're not going to get into that, but that is the truth, that we are made in the image of God. Um, and I would say in all of its ways, okay, a beautiful way. Uh, and there's yet a third way that, are, that, that God created humans differently from animals. Okay, a fourth way. <laughs> that came later, though, but you're right. He put them in charge, and God actually brought every animal to him to see what he would name them. Who named all the animals? Yeah, very interesting. Okay? Yes, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's the one I was getting at. He, he formed them. Right? So you get this concept of a potter with clay. Um, you know, God took special care, uh, like an artist does, those of you that, that like to work with stuff. And even if you're a mechanic or you fix things in the house, there, there's, there's, there's great thought and great joy that comes from, from building, designing, and making something work. Um, and with all the rest of the creation, God simply spoke the world into existence. And we know from John 1, that word now is the pre-incarnate Christ and the word becomes flesh. But with human beings, God didn't speak them into existence. He formed them. And so, you know, when we hear passages from Scripture that you are uniquely and wonderfully made, <laughs> and, 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 and now God is talking about each of us, and how God is still, you know, how we've been knit together in our mother's womb, we believe, first of all, that, that when conception occurs, who is really at work doing all that? God is. And this is very mysterious in some ways. I mean, we have all the science knowledge in the world that we have, but as Christians, we believe God still is at work through that because we believe God is a God who works through means, right? In the same way that through pastors, He absolves your sin. In the same way that, that in simple bread and wine is also His you come with this? In the same way in baptism, simple water, that, that you are now clothed with Christ, right? So, so these are all very paradoxical and mysterious and sacramental and I would just simply say marvelous. So, so right off the bat, you hear that he, he kind of, yeah, he's not going where he needs to go as a, as a Lutheran uh, academic. This is true across the spectrum of nature, including human reproduction. So now he's comparing human reproduction to an acorn becoming a tree and all the rest of that. God's design provides far more potential for reproduction than actual fruits of reproduction. 
This divine benevolence in nature provides for sufficient potentialities. I would say that's a word you need to be aware of, potentiality, that there will be, in fact, adequate actual offspring to continue the species, even though most potentialities do not result in actual offspring. And I'm going to start rocking and rolling here. The human reproductive process, or human life, does not begin at birth, nor even at conception. Within the abortion discussion, one must acknowledge that the trajectory of potential human life moving through stages of development toward the birth of an actual child begins much earlier. Hmm. A human life begins with a viable human egg and a viable human sperm, which given the proper circumstances between a male and a female, barring any intervention, would naturally combine to form a human zygote. This is the basis for Roman Catholic moral theology's opposition to contraception. It artificially and unnaturally intervenes in the process, which could otherwise naturally result in a, pro, uh, in a person. Um, oh, the last pope, what was, uh, that was Pope John Paul II, right? Uh, wrote a whole uh, encyclical uh, on theology of the body. Uh, I've got it on my shelf. If you ever want to study some of that, the majority of it is actually pretty good. It's, it's pretty decent in terms of, 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 of some stuff we would agree with from Scripture. Uh, let's move on. I always do that. I'm sorry. My brain just goes. The percentage of human eggs and sperm actually combining to form human zygotes is obviously extremely small. Of the eggs and sperm that do combine to become zygotes, only 50% successfully implants in the uterus. Of those zygotes that do successfully implant as embryos, some 50% to 75% uh, self-abort or miscarry within the first four to five weeks of pregnancy because of health issues with the woman or problems with the embryo, often before a woman is even aware of being pregnant. Um, and I, and I, I don't like where he goes with this. Um, my wife and I have had three miscarriages, and we believe that we have three children in heaven that we will see one day, okay? I'm going to stop there because otherwise I'm going to get a little choked up. He says, marriages continue to occur as the pregnancy progresses. Although modern medicine is increasingly capable of intervening to preserve pregnancies until the fetus is sufficiently developed to survive outside the womb. Okay? So what he's teaching you is that a miscarriage is part of God's plan of fecundity. That God plans for miscarriages to happen. How do you feel about that? I disagree with that strongly. That this is not part of God's plan. Okay? Uh, given these facts inherent in the trajectory of human life, one must face the obvious question. And now he's going to start answering some questions. The way he argues here, if you're into uh, philosophy uh, and uh, a little bit of uh, <laughs> rhetoric, you'll see how he does this. If God values every conception as highly as the anti-abortionists assert, and the fertilized egg has the same moral and spiritual value as a fully developed postnatal person, then why did God build fecundity into the human reproductive process? If every fertilized egg is already a full human being, a person from the very first stages of gestation, why does God allow such a high percentage of these persons to spontaneously abort or miscarry as part of his plan? He provides no scripture to back up, obviously, what he has said. And I would even say that, that, that some of the, the, the actual science side of it is incorrect as well. Okay? So, so number one, it's not an acorn, it's a human baby. Number two... Um, miscarriages um, and, 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 you know, the spontaneous abortion, I really don't like that word, let's just, let's just say miscarriage, um, that uh, that's not part of God's plan of creation. Three, uh, a child is human immediately from conception, and we know that from DNA, okay? 
Um, and a baby is fully formed at 12 weeks. At 12 weeks. By 16 weeks, has already developed a close relationship with its mother and even father and siblings and others around. Will respond to sound, touch, light, um, all of these things. Okay? Um, and so already at, at four months along, <laughs> there's a relationship <laughs> that is taking place. Okay? And that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful, amazing thing. Okay? Um, I miss taking the flashlight on my wife's belly. and <laughs> That's why my kids turned out the way they did. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So it'd be one thing if he were to say that it's a result of sin or our fallen nature, but he goes so far to say that's part of God's plan. So, so it seems intuitive to me as saying, well, kids are part of God's plan, so... I would, I would agree with you. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay, anyone else? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and finish the rest of this up because I, I want to get to the, the next little article I have here printed for you. The fact that only a minuscule portion of potential life, including human life, becomes actualized, pay attention to his verbiage here, okay? Potentiality, actualization, I mean, these are words when we talk about kind of postmodern thought, and I'm not going to get into the whole conservative liberal thing. Let's just, let's leave that, let's just, words mean things, and so what are we talking about there? Uh, provides a critical theological perspective on the status of prenatal human life. God's own human reproductive design clearly demonstrates a differentiated valuation of the incipient human life during its stages of gestation compared with the status of a postnatal person. And again, I would disagree with him strongly in that sentence. While our loving creator, God loves all of his creation and all of its fecund potentiality, by far most fertilized eggs do not survive the total gestation process, more so in the earlier stages of the process. Roe v. Wade reflects human reproductive fecundity and the increasing chances of a fetus reaching viability and accordingly allows for increasing restrictions on legal abortions as the pregnancy progresses. Contrary to the popular claim of anti-abortionists, there is no provision in our legal system for unrestricted abortion on demand throughout pregnancy. In most states, abortion is actually illegal after the fetus becomes viable, typically around 24 weeks into the pregnancy. You all familiar with what's happened out in New York? Okay. All right. If not, just, just look it up. <laughs> Google New York and abortion, and you can, you can read all about it. Okay? And not just there. It's, it's happening in other places now uh, around our United States as well. Within the reality of naturally occurring spontaneous abortions or miscarriages throughout nature, a unique factor in human life and reproduction is that a woman may view her pregnancy, the potential human life developing within her, as a problem pregnancy. In this case, in consultation with her doctor, spouse, family, or other support network, she may choose to terminate a pregnancy that is otherwise not self-aborting. She may make this choice due to various circumstances that cause her to see the pregnancy as a problem, whether due to rape or incest, due to the fetus having major viability issues, or because the timing of the pregnancy is undesirable. Whatever the circumstances may be that the woman and those around her may consider problematic, only humans have accountability for dealing with the complex medical, moral, and spiritual factors involved in making decisions regarding problem pregnancies. If you haven't seen this movie already, 
write it down off to the side, Gosnell, G-O-S-N-E-L-L. It's now available if you have a Netflix account, you can watch it for free. Um, and it's a story uh, basically of an abortion doctor. Some of you might know some of the history and the involvement of uh, Mahler, Molly uh, Ziegler Hemingway, uh, news reporter and some others involved in it. Uh, but just as you read and think about some of this stuff, uh, be aware of not only what has happened in our past, but be prepared to argue and defend, and I would say this, God's holy word and his truth. Okay? Good, good? All right. Letting God decide is simplistic and untenable, he says. The argument that in the case of miscarriages or stillbirths, we are simply letting God decide or letting nature take its course is simplistic and untenable. <clears throat> As in, yeah, that was on purpose. As in many other areas of medicine, modern reproductive medicine is able to intervene in some cases of problem pregnancies to avoid miscarriages and therefore effectively to override God's decision or the natural course. Given the possibilities for human choice within the human reproductive process, it is very appropriate for Christians to work toward minimizing problem pregnancies so that women have less occasion to make hard choices regarding abortion to end a problem pregnancy, although it is unlikely in our broken world that problem pregnancies will ever totally go away. In light of the above, it is misleading, if not emotionally manipulative, for anti-abortionists to refer to abortion as taking the life of a child or of a person, equivalent, for example, to murdering a two-year-old. Do I need to say anything to you? This is a rostered Missouri Synod professor. I thank God that he's emeritus, but he obviously is still teaching in publicly. Such biblical references as the baby leaping in Elizabeth's womb, an individual being known by God from the womb, or prescriptions against violence toward pregnant women. Let me go back to those first two. They're in the Bible, man. I mean, they're in the Bible. Prescriptions against violence toward pregnant women are either, or are either poetic utterances, so scripture is either a poetic utterance, he writes, or provisions of ancient Jewish law, and understandably do not reflect an awareness of the modern medical and moral complexities in the current abortion discussion. Indeed, there are biblical references to God knowing us individually from all eternity, not just from the womb. Therefore, these biblical references do not justify using the terms child or person as we understand them today in reference to prenatal human life, he writes, at least within any serious discussions about abortion. While the egg and sperm, the zygote, the embryo, and the fetus all have the potential to develop into a child, an individual person, they do not yet have that status before they're actually born. At none of the stages of pregnancy does the potential human being possess those essential uh, qualities we associate with actual personhood. An independently functioning mind and body, a fully defined unique physical appearance, a distinctive personality, and interaction with others in a network of human relationships. Totally disagree with him even based on facts. Regardless of one's position on legality abortion, I trust uh, all are agreed that Christians should reach out with compassion and support to women who for whatever reasons have had an abortion, just as we deal, should deal compassionately with those who grieve the loss of a pregnancy due to a miscarriage. I would say amen to that, absolutely. Um, you know, and if you still struggle with any of these things, I mean, call us as pastors, you know, call some of your friends here from church. Uh, God's, God's word has some wonderful things to, to help you with and help you through. And we need to be aware of that. 
Furthermore, Christians who fight to make abortions once again illegal should feel particularly obligated to take the lead in providing long-term support systems for those women who choose to carry to term, but maybe in a very difficult circumstances, unwed, poor, addictive, depressive, caught in a bad marriage, or otherwise lacking family or community social networks to turn to their struggles. I would agree with that, okay? Not just because we speak against it, but we should care for our neighbor as much as possible, okay? Uh, so homes for unwed mothers, um, you know, help, help. We need to help our neighbor. Finally, pro-life individuals and organizations that claim to be truly concerned about the sanctity of human life should take a hard look at the irony of their expending so much energy and resources on the narrow goal of preventing legal abortions while expending relatively so little energy and resources on rescuing from death the many millions of actual, not potential, living children who are full human persons with unique names, appearances, personalities, and relationships. And of course, he can say that because he doesn't believe that a baby in the womb is actually a baby. Got it? So, I mean, for him, that's the logic. One can only imagine how many of these children could be helped if the financial and political resources currently spent on fighting to make abortion once again illegal were invested in these children's survival. Okay? Now, that's the end of his article. I'm going to take a couple minutes for questions or comments. And then I, I've printed off for you here a response by, by one of my favorite professors uh, from the seminary most closest to us, and that's uh, 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 Reverend Dr. John Pless. Uh, he has a really good response. Uh, to this, and he, he really kind of only tackles one side of it. Um, so, questions, comments before we see what Professor Pless has to say. Wow, even for a, a DNC. Wow. Sure, sure. And my wife had to feel like I had miscarriage when I was two years, and they had to get consultations on her program. Wow. So we have a history of marriage. Amen, brother. Amen. I don't know if all of you heard in the back, but Dr. Colson uh, said that, that, you know, even back in medical school and when you, well, even when you were practicing, right? Um, that, you know, if there was an issue of a pregnancy, there had to be consultation from at least two other doctors. <laughs> prior to a DNC or anything else being done. So, okay, yeah. I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not gonna, I, I'm not gonna break the Eighth Commandment and all I can tell you is what he's written publicly. And he's written some other things in the past but we don't have time to go into some of that now. Um, but it sure seems like he believes it. And he, he's, uh, he gets a little passionate here in that article. You can hear a little bit of that. So, but, but I mean, I think what's, what's, what's difficult is, I mean, I mean, he's still Missouri Synod, right? I mean, so I, I wouldn't be giving you this article if he was a member of a different denomination. I would just chalk it up to false teaching in a different denomination. But to have such false teaching you know, happen, happen within our Missouri Synod, that's, that's a concern because that, that's part of our unity. Okay? And I don't hope anything bad happens to him, and nor should you. I would, I would hope that, that, that the error is corrected, that the sheep are warned against some of that false teaching, because I, I think that's part of the challenge we have even in our own church body, that there is a lot of false teaching out there, and people have fallen into that trap. I know many Missouri Synod people that 
would totally disagree with where I stand or where we historically have stood regarding abortion and life, as well as other issues, homosexuality, even women as pastors. So, other questions? Yes, ma'am. I wrote him a letter, he hasn't responded to me, and my, my angle of attack, I think part of it because it was, it was personal with, with me and, uh, and, and with my wife, although I, she, this is the first she's hearing about this. We, we actually, pastors, don't tell our wives everything at home. You probably think we do, but we're so busy raising children and putting gas in the car that some of those other details we don't get to. But my question for him was, so if I have you know, uh, some members, a couple that experiences a miscarriage, what can I say to them from God's word now? I have nothing to say. Because you're telling me it's, it's not a baby. And, and because there's no baby, there's human life there. There's nothing that's been created. There's nothing that's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. There's no hope in the resurrection. I would say the real issue with where he goes with this is he takes away uh, any application of God's word or the gospel to pregnancies prior to delivery. And, and I think that's, that's, that's quite contrary to Scripture when it speaks about, you know, the baby in the womb, uh, God knowing, God creating, um, and, and the other examples we have. And I think that's really sad because, you know, that, that's of great <laughs> comfort for me um, as a father, and I know for my wife as well, and should be for all couples who have had miscarriages, that, that God cares especially for these little ones and has yet provided for them even in the midst of sin. Okay. Yep, Pastor Grady, thank you. I find it rather interesting in this article that in talking about when a child is a child and a child of God even, he immediately jumps to age two. Oh, yeah, I didn't and, catch that. And, yeah. and leaves this open is, well, at what point can we just say, let's put this child aside? That, you know, the baby's a year old, one-year-old doesn't have any memory or any real knowledge of what's going on. And so you know, I, I just really want to euthanize this child so I can go on my life. I didn't realize what a big deal this would be. Wow. And I think if you take the abortion debate to its telos of where they'd like to be, they'd just like to be free up to a point where you could really say, well, the kid knows three people's names and can feed itself or something. You know, he uses this language of uh, it being able to have independence. You know, God makes babies, right. human babies, the least independent creatures of all things. They need more care than anything else that comes out of a womb for the longest period of time to create that bond, you but, know, and to show that familial love to that child like God has to us as his children. So anyway, my thoughts. But if your dog freezes to death in the backyard, or perhaps even we're going to go there, gets out because you didn't latch the gate and gets hit by a car, you can be fined or even go to jail for animal abuse. So, I mean, don't get me started. There, there's more fines. You know, you, you look at, uh, you know, uh, try messing with a nest of eagle's eggs. <laughs> and see where that gets you. 
I mean, I'm an outdoorsman. I'm a hunter. I, I believe we should be good stewards of God's creation. I, I don't have any issue with any of that stuff. But what we put in place to, to protect animals compared to what we have for humans is, I just, it, 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 I'm a proud American, but that makes me ashamed to be an American citizen. Okay. And, and, and I, I would hope you would think about that too. 10 minutes. I got my warning. Let's go to Professor Pless, unless there's something else, Chuck. I agree. And if you read Reverend Salaming's article, he'll go through some of those statistics. You need to be armed with some of that. Um, up here front, and then I'll come back to you. Yes, sir. I, I, I think I'm beating the same drum. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. My kids want to think they are. There's not a single one of the four that I'm ready to turn loose. <laughs> and they would say they could make it, but I guarantee you they'd be back in a day or two. <laughs> so, okay, is that everybody? Let's, oh yeah, sorry. Amen. Tentatio is a great thing most of the time. No, you're right. <laughs> All right, let's, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Okay, let's look at uh, Professor Pless here. Um, so here's the response. The January 2019 issue of the Daystar Journal, and please don't read that on a regular basis. If you're reading that, you need to come talk to us pastors. <laughs> I, I know a lot of the people that publish in it, and you're going to get more of the same on other veins of theology. But let's just not get into the political side of the Missouri Senate. And this is an election year, which is part of why some of this is coming out, I think. Um, you know, but uh, Jesus comes to bring light, uh, light uh, upon the, you know, and the truth. So, a uh, January 2019 issue carried an article by the Reverend Dr. Norman Metzler, a professor of theology emeritus at Concord University, Portland, under the title, Sanctity of Life, the Complexities of the Abortion Issue. In this article, Professor Metzger, Metzler moves rather quickly from problem pregnancies to an argument to keep abortions legal and therefore medically safe and responsible. While there is much in Metzler's article that needs to be critiqued, and we did a lot of that here already today, I wish to dwell on a single assumption rooted in a deeply flawed anthropo anthropology. Metzler's argument assumes that dignity is not a gift bestowed on the human being, 
but a status that is achieved at some later stage of biological development. So when you were talking about what's essential for human life, the potentiality, you know, plus, I really like where plus goes with this. Metzler argues that because so many zygotes fail to implant and many more self-abort or miscarry within the first four to five weeks of pregnancy, we cannot reasonably assert at this early stage of development that a human person is present or destroyed. At best, he argues, we are dealing only with a minuscule portion of potential life. Thus, the Portland professor says, it is misleading, if not emotionally manipulative, for anti-abortionists to refer, refer to abortion as taking the life of a child or of a person, equivalent, for example, to murdering a two-year-old. He summarily dismisses biblical references, such as the unborn John the Baptist leaping in Elizabeth's womb, or the prophet Jeremiah being known by the Lord before his birth as poetic utterances, which do not, quote, reflect an awareness of modern medical and moral complexities in the current abortion discussion. The chilling assumption that undergirds Metzler's argument is that human life is only worth protection once it has acquired certain capacities. Metzler's anthropology is antithetical to Luther's confession of the first article in the small catechism that God has made me and he has done this, and let's read it together, only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. Dignity is not a status to be acquired, Rather, it is given. The German Lutheran theologian Oswald Bayer wrote an article, Self-Creation, on the Dignity of Human Beings, uh, Modern Theology, April 2004, countering the claim of the Princeton eth ethicist. And if you haven't heard of Peter Singer, I really don't want you to go research him. But, uh, oh, it's, it's uh, yeah, human genocide. Yeah, let's move on. That the crucial moral question is not when life begins, but when this life reaches a point at which it merits protection, Bayer notes that the embryo does not develop into a person, but develops as a person. Hear and understand. In truth, Metzler's position is different from that of Singer, only in degrees. It is substantially the same argument, differing only to the degree that Metzler assumes the involvement of God while Singer does not. Bayer's careful theological work is of service in deconstructing the unbiblical anthropology in Metzler's article. Bayer writes, the dignity of any human being lies in the indissoluble intertwining of elements and instituting word. It is attributed to him or her bestowed, given on loan by the one who promises and gives himself unconditionally to humankind, namely God. Thus, my dignity as a human being is attributed to me without any worthiness on my part. Agree with Bayer? I would say amen to that. Um, Bayer further explains this catechetical truth in a more recent article, Being in the Image of God. Because this dignity is bestowed by God, it disallows every human requirement. In this absolute gratuity lies the decisive viewpoint for the formation of ethical judgment. Human life is recognized pre-socially and to be recognized socially as unconditional without having to justify itself through specific properties, merits, or self-acquired dignities. Metzler, however, begins with the assumption that there are problem pregnancies that may be ended by abortion. For Metzler, this is a simple conclusion built on the assumption that the developing life in the womb cannot be identified as a person. Personhood, for Metzler, consists in the presence of certain functions or capacities. By way of contrast, Bayer follows the logic of the small catechism in confessing that the unborn possess dignity not as a reward for survival, but as a categorical gift from the beginning without any merit, worth or merit on their part. 
We champion the sanctity of life because this sanctity is a gift freely given by our triune creator. Okay, I've got a minute left. Questions, comments? Yes, ma'am, Lestine. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Anybody else? Any of our other pastors here? We've got one, Pastor Ullman, anything you want to add? <laughs> Thanks for not throwing anything at me. <laughs> now, abortion is, is just, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's an issue we need to continue to educate and teach um, and, uh, you know, and, and not, not be angry. We need to be winsome, um, but we need to do that armed with, with God's word of how we answer and deal with some of these things. Yes, ma'am. Do you have a 3D uh, ultrasound there? Or if it's just a regular one? Okay. We just added a 3D one where I left to our, our pregnancy uh, resource center there. And, and that was a real blessing because it, you know, they, they could see the baby that much better with the new equipment. And, and, and they were, ladies were already talking how much of a difference that was making with some of the, the women that were coming in. So I was just curious. Chat with me later this week. I'd like to know a little bit more about what we have available here in our area and what we do as a congregation as well to support some of that. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. He's been in the news quite a bit. I. Uh, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not going to say what I'm thinking, but. Just, just why certain things make it to the news cycle and others don't, you know. But let's let, let let's just leave that one alone for here. <laughs> Anything else? Okay, let's stand and close with the Lord's prayer. We'll get back to uh, Marquardt uh, next week. Uh, so if you haven't got the book already, do that. Otherwise, we'll have it here for you to follow along. The Lord be with you. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Amen.